So we're going to continue in John chapter 19 today. I do know that it's Palm Sunday, and uh, we remember Jesus' triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. Here's the problem. In uh, John, the book of John, it's 21 chapters long. There is chapter 12 is the triumphal entry. We're in chapter 19. In one week, you go from the triumphal entry, all the things that Jesus did, finally his arrest and uh, trial, and then his crucifixion, three days in the grave, and he rose again on the next Sunday. And there's just too many things to talk about um, <clears throat> from when you go from Palm Sunday to Easter. So we've been working our way through John, so we're actually a little bit ahead of uh, Palm Sunday in the story. And uh, so we're going to return to the scene of Jesus on the cross in John chapter 19. And uh, we are celebrating him as King of kings and Lord of lords as he came into the city of Jerusalem, and certainly as it was declared on Easter. And yet uh, in between that is where he suffered uh, the ultimate price for you and for me because of his love for us. And um, here he, Jesus hung on the cross because he was accused by the Jews of claiming to be the Son of God, which was the truth. And he was hung there by the Romans, condemned for them because they asked him, are you king? And he wouldn't deny it. And it also was true. He's the king of kings. And he was sent into this world by God to die as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, for me, it's been significant to walk through this valley of the shadow of death with Jesus and to learn of his sufferings and to know that nothing we experience will ever be close to what Jesus endured for you and for me in terms of pain and shame and rejection. And yet he understands what's going on in us and he's with us in our struggles. So last week we looked at the story where Jesus was condemned before Pilate at the judgment hall and then he was marched by the soldiers to the place of crucifixion carrying his own cross. He had a sign slung around his neck that proclaimed, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. He's bleeding from where he's been flogged all across his back and his head from where he's been slugged and slapped, where people have grabbed his beard and ripped it out and a crown of thorns jammed on his head. And the Roman soldiers don't think that he can make it the long walk to the place of crucifixion without dying. And their job is to make him suffer as much as possible in, uh, on the cross. So they grab one of the bystanders named Simon of Cyrene, who's coming into the city of Jerusalem as a pilgrim with his two sons, Alexander and Rufus, and they force Simon to carry the cross for Jesus. When they get there, Jesus is slung on the ground on the cross, and he's nailed through each wrist, and the sign is tacked on the cross above his head to declare to everybody his name and his crime. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And then the crossbeam is hoisted up on the vertical, so it's kind of like, it's like a T, and his feet are pinned to the cross with one long nail, and his suffering becomes intense, excruciating. Breathing is very difficult and getting harder, and he's trying to stand up on feet that have a nail pierced through them. Jesus had said, if I be lifted up, I will draw everyone to myself. And so this passage that we're, uh, this theme we're under, rising, through death. We're looking, Jesus has been lifted up on the cross, and we pick this story up in verse 25 of chapter 19. Jesus hung on the cross for six hours, from approximately nine in the morning till about three in the afternoon. And let's see who was surrounding him at the cross. We know, because we talked about last week, that there are four Roman soldiers who tossed the dice for his five pieces of clothing. We know that there were two robbers or thieves, they're called. Really, they were terrorists who were crucified by him. They're not there for petty theft. They're not there for, because they were pickpockets. They had probably killed innocent people in their efforts to achieve their cause. 
And so they are being put to death with him. But there are some other people at the foot of the cross. It says in verse 25, standing by the foot of the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister and Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Now, John, this disciple who Jesus loved, is an eyewitness to the crucifixion of Jesus. He's the only disciple who had the courage to be there that day. All the rest uh, have uh, defected or are in hiding. And... This is probably John's first taste of death. He was the youngest of the disciples. Probably was about 20 years old. My first taste of death, well, I was 20. And it was my best friend from college who went home for the summer and then in a freak accident was killed. I was up in the mountains teaching rock climbing and uh, was out on a three-week trip and didn't hear about it until after he had died and they'd had his memorial service and his body had been put in the grave. And so I missed all that and assumed that later we would grieve with people from the Christian college that we both went to. So part of my, the healing process for me was listening to Handel's Messiah, which has the number in it, the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised. And the great hope that we have that in Jesus, we're going to see those we love who've loved the Lord again. And from that, he will bring comfort. And so uh, I'm blessed to get to sing that song this afternoon in our concerts. And uh, it will be a blessing. Well, the song will be a blessing. I, I, I'm blessed to get to sing it. I, I hope you're here and enjoy it. But um, <clears throat> it was part of that whole getting hope once again in the Lord and in what he promises. John is the only disciple at the cross of Jesus. And he didn't miss it all. He saw it all firsthand. And so John sets up the story here of four women who believe and four soldiers who couldn't care. The soldiers are carelessly tossing the dice to see who's going to win his clothing while God is intentionally bringing forgiveness to mankind by his sacrifice. Many of the women that are mentioned here, there's four of them, <clears throat> they're listed in several places in the Bible. And in fact, in Luke chapter 8, verses 2 and 3, it mentions most of these same women and mentions that while the disciples were in uh, the remedial classes uh, learning what Jesus was trying to teach them, the women were actually doing the work, getting the ministry done, getting things organized, preparing the food, and paying for it all out of their own pockets. And so they really were uh, more, uh, you know, more advanced in their uh, walk of faith. So the first person mentioned here is Jesus' mother, Mary. Now, I want to talk about what we know from the Bible about Mary. She's well known. We talk about her every Christmas because she figures so much in the story of the miraculous virgin birth of Jesus that came through Mary, demonstrated by the power of God, but also it was the voluntary submission of Mary's life. When the angel came and said, here's what God wants to do in your life, she said, may it be to me as you have said. It changed her whole life plan. That story is found in Matthew chapter 1 and 2 and Luke chapter 1 and 2. When Jesus was eight days old, Mary and Joseph took him to the temple to be dedicated uh, to the Lord. And they were blessed to meet a couple of godly senior saints, Anna and Simeon, and just kind of hanging out at the temple praising God. And Simeon gave them this prophecy. It says in Luke 2.34 that Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. 
Simeon never saw the crucifixion himself, but he was able to warn Mary in advance, your soul is going to be pierced with sorrow when you see what happens. We know that shortly after taking Jesus to the temple for his dedication, Mary and Joseph were woken up by an angel in the middle of the night and told to race to Egypt to save the life of their baby Jesus from the wicked King Herod, who sent soldiers to the Jerusalem and killed every baby born uh, that was, every baby boy that was two years old or younger. And so then the next time Mary shows up in the biblical account is in Luke chapter 2 when Jesus is 12 years old. And they're on a trip to Jerusalem. Presumably they had his bar mitzvah and he's recognized as going from being a child to being a man. And on their way home, when they checked at the end of a long day's walk, because it was about 50 miles walk back up to Nazareth, they couldn't find Jesus. So they raced back to Jerusalem that night and after three days of searching for him, they find him in the temple talking with the scholars. Here's how Luke records it, starting in Luke 2:48. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? <laughs> did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus submitted himself to the will of God by continuing to grow in their home until he was about 30. Eighteen years go by. There, that, this was the last mention of Joseph when Jesus was 12. And finally, when he begins his ministry, he starts by going in to preach in Nazareth in the home congregation. And it didn't go well. In fact, that's an understatement. He got the people so mad in his hometown that they wanted to kill him. They took him out to a cliff on the edge of town. They were going to throw him over the cliff for what he had to say. And uh, he decided it's time to move. So he moved his home office uh, for his ministry to Capernaum, which is about a day's walk, about 15 miles, uh, uh, down closer to the Sea of Galilee. But the crowd in Nazareth said this, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And not, are not all his sisters here with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And the Bible says they took offense at him. The rejection in Nazareth caused Jesus to move. And uh, so I'm sure that back home in Nazareth, in this little two-bit town, uh, with Mary and James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters, it, it was not easy for them as they continued to get reports. Jesus' ministry is escalating. He's doing more miracles. He's doing more healings. He's, he's uh, teaching people, and their reports keep coming back to Nazareth. This guy's incredible. He's crazy. Did you hear what Jesus said? Did you know what he did? He must be out of his mind, and so forth and so on. And finally, the family decided we better bring him home to a little rubber bedroom and uh, we got to take some action. And I think this might have been the lowest point in Mary's faith. You wonder, what was she doing there? Verse 21 in Mark chapter 3 says, when his family heard all this that was going on, they went out to seize him for they were saying he's out of his mind. And the Greek word there is lunatic, which translated into English is lunatic. <laughs> it's crazy. They thought he had gone crazy. And they were going to get him and seize him and bring him back. And so his mother and his brothers came, it says in verse 31. Standing outside, they went to him and they called him. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he said, Who are my mother and who are my brothers? 
And looking at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. And Jesus is saying here, yes, that's the family I grew up with. But more important than a physical or biological connection to people is a spiritual connection of people together who choose to hear God's word and follow it. And that is going to last forever and ever. Here's my mother and my brothers and my sisters. And he doesn't go back to Nazareth with them. The next time we see Mary, she's in this story right here. She's standing at the foot of the cross. It was courageous. It was bold. It was risky. It was love. It could have cost her everything, but it doesn't seem to matter to her anymore. Mary's in love with Jesus, and he cared for Mary to the end. Jesus even spoke to her from the cross. He took responsibility for his mother. I mean, while Jesus is dying for the world, he's thinking of the individual. It's the same for you today. Jesus cares about the whole world, but he cares for you. Standing with Mary is her sister. I don't think her sister's named Mary, even though they seem to have a shortage of names. They name, seem to name most of the girls Mary and most of the boys Simon or Judas or James in the Bible. But uh, I don't think, unless, uh, unless Joseph had previous children and then it was a blended family, you wouldn't have two girls in the same family named Mary. So I think actually this woman was named Salome the mother of John and James. And she's mentioned in Matthew 27 and in Mark 10 and in Mark 15, in case you wanted to go looking. And it's good that she's there for uh, support that uh, Mary needed. And her husband, of course, would be Zebedee, uh, the fisherman, and uh, they probably lived in uh, Capernaum. The next person mentioned is Mary, the wife of Clopas. Now, if you've ever been to a sporting event for one of your kids or grandkids, you know that most of the fans there are family. And I think around the disciples, most of their earliest fans, most of these women had some connection somehow to Jesus through one of the disciples. And this woman, uh, Mary, the wife of Clopas, well, Clopas and Cleopas are the same name, and uh, Clopas and Alpheus are the same name in different languages. So Mary, the wife of Clopas, probably is also the mother of the disciple called James, the son of Alphaeus. In fact, you could look this up in Mark 3.18. I think this also woman could have been the walking partner of Clopas on the road to Emmaus. She's married to him, and they're walking to the same house. It only tells us one name. It tells us Clopas or Cleopas was on the road talking with Jesus, and this other person, I think it might have been his wife, and they were headed home, and Jesus was sharing the scriptures with them. The fourth person named is Mary Magdalene, and she's listed as one of those who out of her own resources supported Jesus' ministry. And it mentions that Jesus healed her of seven demons. So there must have been an awful period of her life, and Jesus came along and saved her. He was the, the Savior, the Redeemer. And there's no mention in Scripture, however, of her being a woman of loose moral character, though I think we credit her sometimes with being the prostitute that's mentioned in Luke 7, who came to a banquet where Jesus was and was just uncontrollably crying, splashed her tears on his feet, and then dried her feet with her hair, and just kind of shot everybody, but that woman is not, does not have a name in Scripture. That's in Luke 7. But then Mary Magdalene is mentioned in Luke chapter 8, just as it begins. The Scriptures don't make the connection with her morality. Now, Jesus Christ Superstar did, 1973, or The Last Temptation of Christ by Nikos Kazantzakis, but those aren't 
Those aren't in the Bible. This is the Mary who the Bible says is crying outside the tomb when it's found to be empty. And suddenly she finds herself, she thinks this man is a gardener, but when he speaks, she realizes it's Jesus. He called her name, and she runs to him, and she's hugging him. She's clinging to him. Finally, he says to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. Now, in all of this, as you look at Jesus' view of women, in four Gospels about Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of them written by men, you do not ever hear one negative word from the words, lips of Jesus, not one derogatory word concerning women. Jesus sets woman at the side of man equally as a child of God. Well, verse 28 then, as we continue, says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. The hyssop plant doesn't usually send out long stalks, but they said it is possible off of certain um, hyssop plants to get a stalk maybe up to a foot and a half long. And so you'd be able to lift it up if Jesus wasn't up super high on the cross. However, it's kind of interesting that the word spear in Greek, you just take off the P. So whether somebody was scribbling real quickly and it ended up looking like it was hyssop versus a spear, because it would make sense for a soldier to take his spear, put a sponge on it, and put some of the sour wine, which would help dull the pain, and then lift it to Jesus' lips. Also would to uh, give his tongue a little bit of moisture if it was sticking to the roof of his mouth. Verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. Crucifixion was intended and perfected to make death as slow and painful as possible. So people who were crucified died of asphyxiation, like a bad case of asthma, that they, every breath was painful. And the Gospels record seven statements that Jesus made from the cross. John has three of them. Luke has three of them recorded. And Matthew and Mark have the same one that they both put in. I mean, even with terrible pain, Jesus is only thinking of others. So I want to kind of go over in the order that they're thought of that Jesus said them from the cross. The first one is in Luke 23. Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And he talks about forgiveness. I don't think he's just talking about the Roman soldiers or the Jewish leaders who are there scoffing or the looky-loos who are walking by or his uh, friends who have failed him and run away or us. He was nailed to the cross for all of us for the sin of the world, and he offers forgiveness. The next statement is right after that in Luke where he says to the thief on the cross, I tell you the truth today, you will be with me in paradise, and he offers hope. And then the first one from John, woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother. He talks about relationship. The next one is the one that both in Matthew and in Mark where he feels the sin of the, of the world and the weight of it and God sees it and turns away from him and he quotes Psalm 22, which we mentioned last week, talks a lot about crucifixion even though Psalm 22 predated crucifixion by 500 years. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it talks about despair. Then in John he says, I'm thirsty, talks about human need because Jesus truly was fully man and fully God. And then he said, it is finished. It's success. And then Luke records, 
where he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, which is trust. John records, woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother, and I thirst, and it is finished. It is finished is in the present tense, which is a, a completed action with a continuing result. A completed action with a continuing result. It has been finished. In Greek, it's one word, tetelestai. What Jesus did that day by dying on the cross for sin has a positive continuing effect for all of mankind who choose to receive his forgiveness. It is finished. What do you hear in that phrase? It depends on the circumstance. He's not saying it's over. He's saying it's completed. It's the cry of the carpenter who says, when he finally finished sanding and, and putting varnish on a piece of furniture, it is finished. Not almost finished. It is finished. The greatest need of mankind has been met. What's finished? We are. We're completely forgiven. It's the shout of the shepherd. Finished. I've been counting 97, 98, 99, 100. All the sheep are safe in the sheepfold. The day is complete. I can now rest. And Jesus closes his eyes as God in human flesh. And he could picture us safely in the fold of God. It's as if he's on the battlefield and he's won. Jesus has won the victory. And it says, verse 30, with that he bowed his head and he gave up the spirit. You know, three men were crucified that day, and Jesus was the first of the three to die. It says, verse 31, since it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead... They did not break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows he's telling the truth that you may believe. John's saying, I saw this with my own eyes. I'm an eyewitness. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they looked on him whom they have pierced. When they pierced his side, blood and water came out, which shows us two very important things. Number one, Jesus really died. He really died. Some people have tried to say, well, you know, he just went unconscious. He was dehydrated, but they got him into the tomb. And uh, in the cool of the tomb, he just swooned. And then pretty soon, he revived. And somehow, he managed to get himself out of the grave clothes and away from the 75 pounds of uh, spices that they buried him with and crawl across the tomb and uh, move the stone that weighed more than a ton and escape. That takes more faith than believing he came back from the dead. The second thing you can see is his heart had been broken. He didn't just die from a Roman tool of torture. He died of a broken heart, a heart that was torn by his love for you and for me. Jesus' life is over. He's paid the full price of sin for you and for me. Now, the rest of the story might feel like just we're filling in details, but I hope that you can see that God was at work in the affairs of men. It says in verse 38 that after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body, 
Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. See, after the criminals died on the cross, their bodies would be taken down and then simply thrown in the trash pit in the valley outside the city where someplace there was a continual fire going. There would have been nothing special done for their bodies. And who would risk their life with Rome for Jesus now that he's died? But this was a very, very important part of the details. Jesus didn't own his own estate. His family was poor. They couldn't afford anything. If his body had been tossed there, somebody could have made up a story of maybe he really wasn't dead. But look how God works. John records that Joseph of Arimathea was a disciple. I mean, he's mentioned in all four Gospels. Matthew tells us that he was wealthy. Mark tells us that he's a member of the Sanhedrin, the council, and, he, and that he was waiting for the kingdom of God. And Luke tells us he had not concurred with their vote to condemn Jesus. Well, the Sanhedrin is the Jewish council. It's kind of like their Supreme Court and their Congress and their Senate all rolled into one. It had 70 Jewish men on it. It governed the secular and religious matters affecting the Jewish population. It had the right to try capital cases and execute the sentence, but not to death. The court was held every Monday and Thursday, but never on a Sabbath or on a feast day and never at night. So they broke their own rules to arrest and try Jesus in the middle of the night. It would have been made up of these 70 men, most from influential families or priests from the line of Aaron or the high priest and some of his sons. And the priests were bound to either be Sadducees, who were the enlightened liberals, who claimed there's no resurrection, there's no life after death, it's all right here, and when you're dead, it's over. Or they were the Pharisees, who were kind of the fighting fundies, you know, not sure, not just sure for themselves of everything, but for everybody else as well. And their righteousness is determined by their do's and don'ts, not by a genuine relationship with God. They were into the religion and the ritual and the rules. They missed that they were, could have a relationship with God himself. Well, Jesus had a way of irritating the members of the Sanhedrin and of just getting under their skin. And when he was accosted by the Sadducees with a trick question about the resurrection, which, remember, they didn't believe in the resurrection, but they bring in this story of a woman had a husband who died and she married his brother and he died and he married his brother and he died and went through seven brothers and then they all died and she had no children. Now, whose wife would she be in the resurrection? And Jesus said to them, you're wrong because you neither know the Scriptures nor the power of God. Of course, it had numerous run-ins with the Pharisees because they were intent on the rules trying to that they had made up, trying to explain away God's Word. And they're living by the rules rather than a relationship. Well, this had all come to a head when Lazarus, who must have been quite influential in Jerusalem, had died. And the, the, he had been buried. And Jesus came to pay his respects and stood at his tomb and called out, Lazarus, come forth. And after being dead for four days, Lazarus came up out of the grave. And at that point, they realized Jesus is getting way too popular. He's doing things that people shouldn't be allowed to do. And if we don't do something drastic, we are going to lose our positions of influence. And they decided, let's kill Jesus and maybe even Lazarus too. So these leaders who finally have gotten Jesus as he's hanging on the cross come by to mock him and throw it in his face. 
Matthew tells us, those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying he saved others. He can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. Caiaphas, the high priest, stood at the cross, exulting in his own power, never dreaming that God had chosen the greatest weakness of this world, death, to accomplish his greatest purpose. God's using the weakness of this world to confound the mighty. He's using death to accomplish his purpose. So here at the foot of the cross, next to the mocking high priest and his cohorts and the smirking crowd passing by is Joseph of Arimathea, who's one of the 70 ruling elders. But he's a disciple of Jesus. And yet he's kept it a secret because he's afraid that it'll cost him something. It'll cost him too much. It'll cost him his position. Now his action is courageous. This is his coming out party. He's wanting everybody to know, I support Jesus instead of the Sanhedrin party line. He takes the initiative and he petitions Pilate for permission to remove the body. This is actually very astounding. I think it's orchestrated only by God. I mean, his request is an open confession of his faith. Up to now, he's been a secret believer and he realizes, I cannot stand by and just watch this happen. So, think about it. This is amazing. What do you, uh, if you had from now till noon to get a hold of our governor and to make a special request, how many people here think they, well, I won't put you on the spot. I know I couldn't do it. Would not be able, well, I could try for the next 90 minutes. I would not be able to reach the governor. And most of us would not. And what do you think it would take to get an audience with Pilate on that day and then to hear him say yes to your request? Who knows what size of price that had on it? Because Joseph is a man of means and of influence, and he's able to get through to Pilate to request, could I bury the body of Jesus? And he hears, yes. This was costly and courageous for Joseph. Teaming up with Joseph of Arimathea is another dissenting member of the council named Nicodemus. You might remember him because he first shows up in John chapter 7 or John chapter 3. He comes to Jesus by night, which asks him a lot of questions. It's dark outside, but it's also dark in his heart. And uh, Jesus is explaining to him the good news and finally says to him, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but might have eternal life. Nicodemus goes back to his teaching as the teacher of Israel, but he had been living in the dark. He must have been thinking about it, and it's over time that he begins to uh, uh, contemplate Jesus. In John 7, the high priest had sent officers to go arrest Jesus, and they come back without him. And the officers, it says in verse 45, came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, what? Why did you not bring him? And they said, well, no one ever spoke like that man. And the Pharisees, have you been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who, is now one, and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? In other words, he's advocating fairness and moderation. 
And they replied, Are you from Galilee? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Nicodemus' faith didn't grow overnight. He wasn't easily convinced, and it was going to cost him a lot to become a believer of Jesus, way more than most of us here in the room. And in this instance, he's trying to be fair. He's trying to help moderate. He's trying to say, let's think about this. But it didn't work. Their minds were made up. They turned on Jesus, and they turned on him. Now here in chapter 19 at the foot of the cross, he is living in the light. He shows up with 75 pounds of of expensive spices. This is way, way over the top for what you would need to bury somebody. And he's clearly showing to whoever's there that his loyalty and allegiance is to Jesus, regardless what it's going to cost him, professionally or personally. See, for Joseph and Nicodemus, the cross ended the struggle they had between do I maintain my prestige and my position or do I receive forgiveness from God? And if I can't do both, which one am I going to do? And they chose, be right with God. Be right with God. I would encourage that as an example to you and to say the same. Be right with God. Because here we are at the cross. We can see Jesus' great love. We can see his death. But also we see life. He died so that we might live. How do you fit this traumatic event into our ordinary lives? It's a victory. God broke the power of sin and death. We can have victory over sin and temptation. God is victorious over those. It shows God's power is here every day at our disposal for us to live victoriously as his believers. We can live in gratitude and thanks to Jesus because we've been forgiven and we've been declared righteous in God's sight. Jesus died for you. Live for him. He wanted you to know this. He sang from the cross, I love you. Shall we pray? Jesus, I thank you that you died so that we don't have to. You love us so much. I pray that we will not be like the crowd with the wagging head or with the sneering elders who thought they had it all figured out. Or those that stayed perpetually confused, I pray that we will realize that you were there voluntarily, you were there out of love, you were there to pay a price that we can't pay ourselves, that you were the only way for us to be right with God, and you were willing to suffer loss, humiliation, shame, anguish, and death for your love. Now fill our hearts with your love and with gratitude. May we grow in our love for you and in our uh, trust of you, and uh, may we follow you in all things. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your love. Amen.